This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 273, and I'm talking with Andrew Castor. So this is our third of the four-part coaching series we're putting out every other week. Andrew coaches the... Andrew is the head coach for the Mammoth Track Club. He started his own running journey at the age of 14 and went on to get a degree in exercise physiology where his love for the sport grew. He also competed cross country and track while in college, specializing in the middle distance events. And after graduation, he moved to Mammoth Lakes, California, where he created and coached a nonprofit running club called the High Sierra Striders. So now he's the head coach for the Mammoth Track Club, which is currently sponsored by On Running. He is married to the great Dina Castor, Olympic bronze medalist, and they have a daughter, Piper. Andrew was such a fun interview. We got to learn a lot about the principles he applies to his own coaching, some of the great lessons he's learned from other great coaches that he's had the opportunity to work with. And we get to even hear a little bit about Dina's training from back in the day. Super fun episode. Andrew stayed on for an extra, I think it was nine, 10 minutes. And we did some bonus questions, which you can hear over on Patreon. He gives us his favorite workouts, big monster workout ideas, last workout ideas before a marathon, things like that. Um, and when you support the show for $5 a month, you can get access to additional questions like that. Head over to patreon.com slash to gain access. I actually also just recorded a Patreon episode with Lauren Flores yesterday. So that'll be dropping sometime today as well. All right. This episode is sponsored by Prevenex. This is where I get my multivitamins, my joint health plus supplement, and the best protein powder out there, Nurify Plus. I use it every day. My boys drink smoothies every day with it. I'm telling you, this smoothie we make is packed with all the good stuff. And when I am busy and on the go, a lot of times if I have an early morning workout where I'm going to meet my friends, I will just shake up the powder with some water. And it is good that way. And it is an easy way to get a little mini meal in when you're on the go. It is a vegan product as well. My kids also use their Supervites, their kids' vitamins, and Prevenex is a really amazing give back program that you all should definitely check out. So go save 15%, go support a sponsor of this podcast, and use the code ANOTHER to get 15% off your order with Prevenex. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Andrew Castor. Well, today on the podcast, I'm super excited to welcome Andrew Castor to the show. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Well, you know I've interviewed Dina several times, so it's really fun to interview uh, the spouse, the the coach behind the Mammoth Track Club. Yeah, yeah. Dina's mentioned uh, her her podcast that she did with you. Um, I think it may have been might have been last year or pretty pretty recent. Uh, I did have a chance to listen to it and thought it went well, and I'm happy to be on the show. 
Yeah, yeah. She came for the um, live show, actually, because she was here for Monumental. And then it was funny. I heard, caught wind she was coming for Monumental. And I live in Indianapolis. So I was like, well, there is no way we can't do a live show around this. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, perfect timing. Yeah, you're, you're, the moons were aligned for that one. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, so I'm kind of doing a little coaching series here. And, and I love the thought of getting coaches from all different uh, walks of the, the running careers and, and places. So uh, I'm excited to have you on. Let's just get started here talking about what's going on with the Mammoth Track Club right now in these crazy times. Yeah, not much, actually, Lindsay. Uh, you know, we have several different dimensions of the Mammoth Track Club. We have our, our youth uh, our youth program that we usually do each summer for about 12 weeks, where we teach kids the fundamentals of track and field down at our, our track. And uh, we also have race series and speaker series that we, that we host. Uh, we have a Footloose Freedom Mile that's in its fifth, 15th year running. Uh, we had to cancel that, of course. So our adult membership, uh, our general membership um, is non-existent. We have such a small elite team that we do have, we do have organized practices. Uh, there's only two of them in town right now. So we're only, we're only, I'm only coaching two athletes and they're doing two different workouts and they're down at the track. And um, so it's pretty, pretty minimal right now during, during this pandemic and these crazy times, but um, using, using this time to kind of regenerate a little bit and get some ideas for the future and nail down some, some nuts and bolts for, for future, future endeavors like camps and, and future races that we can host here in Mammoth when, when things do open back up. Yeah, it's such a strange time for everybody. Now, do you guys in general keep your numbers low on the elite side for specific reasons? No, it just kind of happens the way it, you know, it happens to be the way it is right now. We've had upwards of of 10 athletes in the past um, fluctuating between 6 and 10 and right now we're at 4. Uh, we 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 did have a, a housing not a housing issue, but we were getting housing from Mammoth Mountain Ski Area, and we had that for for four or five years. And when that went away, it just it kind of it, some athletes went away with that with that um, retraction that happened, unfortunately, because it is Mammoth is an expensive place to live. I mean, we're a resort resort town for mainly San Diego, Orange County, LA la area people that come up and and ski in the winter time so housing is pretty pretty expensive so that housing bonus that we had then we're able to offer athletes uh, you know that was that was such a bonus um the last the last four or five years for us so we're trying to work back from that and you know our races and our other endeavors bring in bring in funds for our elite team but we, since we can't host any of those events this year. Um, so our, you know, our, our finances are, are, are down this year, but next year looks promising, uh, you know, with, with, uh, you know, bouncing back. And I think people are going to be pretty eager and hungry to, to race and to get up here to the mountains. Actually right now, Mammoth, Mammoth, uh, is a, is a destination for a lot of people from, mm. from Washington, Oregon, Utah, Nevada, you know, Arizona, and then a lot of people from, from Southern California are coming up and recreating. And I've never really seen the town this busy before, which is kind of, kind of scary right? Uh, because, because, because we're, we're a small town of 7,000 people and we have, you know, our hospital only has 17 beds and four ICU beds. So our County health, health officials are, are uh, quaking in their boots, seeing all these people in town and, 
with um, with with rising numbers of of COVID cases and everything, it's getting a little little scary. But most people, I think, are responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, there I, I see a lot of masks out there, especially people recreating and riding their bikes, and you know, they either, they either have a, a clava on or a or a mask or some sort of some sort of um, respirator kind of dampening device on uh, to be to be courteous and respectful to to others. So we we're, we're, we seem to be managing all right. Yeah, there's a post on your Instagram of someone doing a track workout, and it's so beautiful. Like, it's got to be a dream place to live. You know, it is. Uh, You know, we we came here in 2001, uh, bought our house in 2001. We were only going to be here for four years. We know we were going to do a a four-year experiment here with, with one Olympic cycle, and you know, that was, that was 19 years ago. And, uh, you know, we, we love it here. We, we built a track, uh, eight years ago, um, down by, down by the airport. It's about 10 miles outside of town. So it's at 7,000 feet. So it gets less snow and we're able to use it more often, uh, than if it was in town. And, you know, that we're, we're pretty proud of that track. Uh, our, our nonprofit organization, Mammoth Track Club helped bring that track, uh, along with the, the municip- municipality of, of Mammoth Lakes um, it was a it was a public private venture partnership between the two organizations. We're able to to fundraise for that track and uh, to get it in, and and it takes some pretty good photos uh, of of athletes running down there and training. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the birth of that track. Then you, you're nonprofit. So the Mammoth Track Club is nonprofit. So mm-hmm. you guys built it through the funds with the Mammoth Track Club, and then who all is allowed to use it? Is it open to the public? Is it just the track club? What does that look like? Yeah. So the the track the Mammoth Track project started in 2006, and it took us six years to to actually be able to run on the track. Uh, that was mostly just fundraising. Uh, there was some animal mitigation protocols that we had to do mm. where there the, the, the California sage grouse, it was a migratory path of the, of the sage grouse. And we had to give them a year warning that we were going to build a track. So we had to lay down special, you know, special apparatus to, to divert them around. So they, they, for the next year would know to go around the track and all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was a quite the process, um, but we were fortunate to have a, a major donor here in town. It was actually the, the the gentleman that started Mammoth Mountain Ski Area, Dave McCoy, who actually just passed away this year at 105 years old, and uh, he gave us he gave us a big chunk of change, uh, part partly to as a loan to repay to repay him back later, uh, and then and then part of it was a gift. And once once donors knew that we had Dave McCoy in our in our um, arsenal of, uh, of people that were supporting the track project, uh, more people started donating and we raised upwards of $2 million to, uh, to bring that track to mammoth. Uh, coincidentally enough, the year that Dean and I moved here, the high school redid their football stadium and omitted a track. They didn't, they, they didn't put in a track. They huh. didn't see a need. They didn't see a need for it. And it was literally the year that we moved here. Uh, so we went, we went, uh, I guess 11 years without a track in mammoth and we're still, we were still able to produce a lot of, a lot of good track runners during that time. Uh, of course, you know, Meb and Dina won Olympic trials in the 10,000, um, in 2004, Ian Dobson made the team in 2008, you know, did, we didn't have a track. Morgan Euseni was ranked, ranked number one in the world in the 1500 meters, I think in 2000. 11 or 2010 and we didn't have a track so we're still able to get that done you know the track work 
or you know minus a track but now that we have one it's it's obviously a, a valuable tool for us and it's open to the public it's one of the very few tracks in the country that's not attached to an organization or an institution mm-hmm. so it's not on it's not on a high school property it's not on a middle school or college it's just there's it's it's right next to ball fields and it's across the street from a pool and there's like a little animal shelter there as well so it's kind of a, a multi-use multi-use facility recreational uh you know park with mountains in the background <laughs> yes. it's very picturesque well that's crazy i can't imagine like a track team not having a track to run on so like when they had home track meets do they what do they do well there was no there was no track there was no track program at mammoth high school okay uh the, the high school literally graduates 80 kids a year wow. 90 kids a year so it's a very tiny school okay. and and they just didn't have a track program there was like the there was the one kid that was pretty good at cross country and he or she would run track and just kind of jump in the meets um quote unquote in the area i mean we're not really near anything um, so they would drive literally down to Los Angeles to go to Mount Sac, you know, which is a six hour drive to to race and come back. So there was maybe one kid for one or two that would showed interest in running in running track. Uh, the 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 years that I was here with without a track. Uh, but now they they do have a, a smaller track team. It's mostly the cross country kids and the cross country ski kids that that go off for track and they mainly just focus on sprints, hurdles, and distance running. There's there's nobody really to teach the shot put disc, uh, pole vault, any of the jumps. So it's a pretty it's a pretty small team. I think I think the biggest track team they've had in the last five years is maybe twelve kids. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah it yeah. makes sense with only eighty kids graduating. Yeah. Uh, so you guys kind of I read in an article that you described the your track club as kind of like a mom and pop track club. Can you talk to us a little bit about the atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, before before all this, you know, sort of hit the fan sure, with the yeah. pandemic, we, we would have the we'd have the team over for barbecues and team dinners, you know, like once a week. Uh, everybody would bring a dish and, you know, just really, you know, it'd be it'd be we had the team van and we load up the team van in the morning and I'd, I'd drive the team van and Dina would sit shotgun and we have all the athletes in the back. And even with our daughter, we, we throw our daughter in the back there and she would be entertained by, by the young 25 year olds that were on the team and everything. So it was kind of a, a family kind of feel. And, and, um, that's the way we've kind of guided the, the elite athletes on our team was, was to, to really nurture them and to really use the principles that were taught to us to, to succeed, especially here in, in mammoth, uh, at, at our altitude and utilize, utilize the terrain to our best ability. So it was, uh, they were getting, I was a really good note taker when, when coach V Hill and, and mm-hmm. coach Terrence Mann were, were the head coaches here and, and, and coach Bob Larson. And I would always pick their brain. And, you know, I was, I was sort of the de facto assistant coach to all mm-hmm. three of those coaches uh, you know, assisting when they were out of town or, or proctoring workouts and making slight adjustments with the athletes. And, uh, so I learned a lot from them. So I've, I've created my own coaching philosophy based on those three gentlemen, along with my college coach, Damon Martin, um, shaped, shaped my, my coaching philosophy. So, you know, I've, I take that and, and I, and I say, you know, well, you know, Meb, Meb did this workout and, and Dina did this workout and Ryan Hall did this workout and Ian Dobson and, you know, all the quote unquote old, old timers of the Mammoth Track mm-hmm. Club, you know, they, they did these workouts and here's how we scale them back 
to where you know where you are now and 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 we start working towards these kind of times and you know so i was i got tons of notes and 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 uh, lots of anecdotal stories to to tell them but then also dina has has the experience of being on the the world's biggest stage mm-hmm. and and having that knowledge and and knowing what it took the dedication it took to get to that to that spot, you know, cause, cause Dina was a, a decent college runner, but you know, I got, I got guys and, and young ladies on, on my team that were, you know, that sort of that good in college as well. And, and, and Dina's able to relay to them like, Hey, here's, here's what I did. And here's, you know, you're going to do something that's slightly different than, than me, but here's what the, here's what it took. Here's the dedication it took. Here's the, the, the focus it took. And here's the, the recovery that it takes in order to, to make, make sure you're getting the correct adaptations after training and all that. So between the two of us, I think we can bring a, a unique perspective to, to uh, our training group and our training philosophy and, and to the athletes. Yeah. You know, Dina's book, let your mind run, which I know a lot of my listeners have read. Um, this, there's so many huge pieces of mental health like in the performance of your your running and how mental health is such a big part of that that she talks about in that book. So is that something like is does she kind of head that piece up with the team as far as talking about how you mentally get tough through these workouts and races? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think her her book pretty much sums up her philosophy of of what she gives to the athletes on the team and what she gives to just our community in general. Uh, you know, when she sees, when she sees runners that are on our, our general membership or our adult membership, you know, she, she chats with them about being optimistic and, and cultivating optimism and, and all that. And, um, I think it's a, I think the book is, is a good tool to, to be able to give to the, the running community and then the community at large as well. Um, but a lot of, a lot of what I mean, it's it's embodied uh, mm. her 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 philosophy and and uh, what she what she gleaned from Coach V Hill. I think Coach V Hill was a big driver of of her philosophy and 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 the direction it, it's going. Um, and the book really sums it up very well. Yeah, it really does. It's it's one of my favorite. Well, it's one of my favorite books, but definitely one of my favorite running books. Talk to us about Coach V Hill and and Bob Larson and Terrence and and you said you took a lot of notes from them. What would you say some of the biggest lessons you learned from them were? <laughs> well, I guess a play on words it's is loaded, right? No, yeah, it was a play. A play on words is um, Coach Larson making notes all the time. So uh. I took notes all the time as well. So, I mean, there was, there was one instance where Bob Larson, you know, cause, cause Bob Larson coached Meb and then coach D coach V Hill coached Dina. And then, um, they, you know, they, they were able to bring in other athletes that sort of were in the mix, uh, with, with, um, with coach Larson and, and V Hill. But I remember one time with, with Larson, we were at Stanford and Meb was going to run a 10 K and I, I think it was the year he ran like 2720. It wasn't his American record. I think it was a couple years later. And and uh, and Bob was Bob had his notebooks out. And he was saying, Oh yeah, Meb, um, you know, uh, two years ago before the race when you ran 2713, the American record, you know, you had half of a turkey sandwich oh from my Subway. Gosh. 
And and we're like, well, shouldn't shouldn't he have a whole sandwich from from Subway this time so he can run faster? You know, that's sort of, you know we were kind of we were kind of joking around with him, but you know he's got he's got um, he's got backlogs for decades, I think. And there, you know, he's got each each year has its own has its own notebook. So occasionally I'll call him and say, hey, what did go back, go go get your two thousand four book? What did Meb run for his Lake Mary repeats? Uh, at 9,000 feet, you know, with, with how much, was it two minutes rest or was it three minutes rest? And was he running, you know, was he running, uh, 10, 15 for those two and a half or 2.2 mile repeats? And you know, he would go back and he'd say, okay, give me a minute, Andrew, give me a minute. And he put his phone down and he'd go back to his archives and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think, I think taking notes is good because then you can obviously reference a workout from a few years ago and say, Hey, you know, you've, you've progressed and, you know, but that, you know, but that day it was, it was cold and rainy or, or whatever. And it was, it was really windy or you had to stop because of, you know, there was lots of traffic or whatever it was and, and just make, make little, little tiny notes. So I've been doing that all along and making good notes and, and coach V Hill, you know, coach, I think coach V Hill has a very simple philosophy with training, uh, more volume, the better, as long as you stay healthy, of course. <laughs> Um, there's, there's, you gotta, you gotta be able to recover. And, and one of the, one of his big, uh, philosophies is here's the training plan. Make sure that you do everything possible to recover, mm. to be able to successfully do the training plan. And he, and he would give, he would give his athletes, he would give Dina a month training program in advance. So you'd see, hmm. you know, the first, you'd see the first of the month you know, that, that first week where you have like four by a mile at, you know, for Dina, it was like four by a mile, five minute pace, three minute recovery. And then by the end of the month, you'd see six by a mile at 455 <laughs> to five minute pace with three minute recovery. And you're like, oh my gosh, how can I get to there? So you, it would kind of like shock you and scare you into, I better, I better take recovery very seriously uh-huh. be- because, you know, I got to be able to get, I got to be able to survive this training and get to the last week. So that was kind of his philosophy. Like here, here it is. There's no secrets. It's, it's a tempo run a week. It's a long run a week. It's a hill run a week. And it's up upwards of two workouts a week. I mean, it was, it was, his training was absolutely crazy. It was like, it was five days of, of really hard training with two days of recovery. And it was like, okay, figure out how to recover from this. And so in my, in my wife's case, which I know the best, she was literally sleeping 12 hours a day. 10 hours at night, two hours in the afternoon and eating a ton of calories. And then I, I, I came in with, with, you know, maybe eight to 10 hours of massage therapy a week just wow. to make sure she was maybe to make sure she was recovering. And she was taking cold baths, especially in the summertime, um, not in the winter, but you know, she was making sure that she did everything possibly right to make sure that she would re- recover from month to month because coach Vio wouldn't back off. So it's he sort of, he, he, he sort of, sorry, he, he sort of, he sort of wants you to rise to the occasion. As, yeah. As, as sim- simply put. Well, I mean, it, the, it sounds weird to say, cause obviously sleeping is not work, but it seems like the recovery is like just as much work as the training because it's, you have to be so meticulous about it. So maybe, maybe not just as much work isn't the way to put it, but like just as important, just as valuable. You, an, an elite professional athlete has to consider themselves a tw- working 24 hours a day. Yeah. They're, they're, they're literally at work, whatever they put into their bodies, how much they sleep, how much they train. They're literally working 24 hours a day and anything that 
takes away from that little bit of energy that goes back into recovery um, is is assessed. You know, there was a lot of times where we said no going to graduations mm-hmm. or weddings or parties or whatever. And we said, we, we opted out and said, you know what? There's a 25 mile run tomorrow. We can't drive down to your parents' house, which is five hours away, drive back and then make, mm-hmm. make the training run. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So there was a lot of, it was dedication. And I think maybe Dina says it in her book that we don't believe in sacrifices. Mm-hmm. That's a bit, that's, that's a bit dramatic for us. Sacrifices. <laughs> It's, it's choices, it's choices, making, making the right, right choices. You know, and I, and I hear athletes saying, you got to make the sacrifice. And I'm uh-huh. like, that's a bit, that's a bit dramatic. I mean, there's, there's other things in life where maybe you do sacrifice something, but we're talking about running. So we're making, we're making, we're making good choices, um, to, to, to better ourselves in running. I love then, that. That I love that theory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's, and then from, from coach, coach man, uh, coach Terrence, uh, I learned that you gotta, you gotta coach the individual. You know, that was one of his big things was, was coach the individual personality. So the, the, the simplest way I can explain that is if you take two different, if you take two athletes and you give them the same workout, like a fartlek. So you take, you take Dina and you take back in the day, Morgan Euseny, who was a 1500 meter runner, mm-hmm. obviously Dina marathoner. You take both those athletes and you tell them to do a fartlek. And you give them about the same sort of parameters, like, okay, two minutes on, two minutes off. Morgan's going to run it completely different than Dina's going to run it. Mm. So you got to make, you got to identify those different psychological and physiological barriers, not barriers, but uh, um, just those psychological differences, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, identify those and coach and coach those specifically. So like when I give my, my track runners, my middle distance runners, uh, you know, a, a fartlek occasionally. Uh, I know that the marathoners are gonna are gonna whoop up on them because their recovery, the, re- the recovery jog in between mm-hmm. is gonna be much faster. So he's got to make sure that you're playing playing to the, each individual personality of of the athlete. What a cool group to have been able to learn from. Oh yeah, no, I've I consider myself very lucky to be able to have have sat in when, on conversations with with Terrence and coach V Hill, uh, just before an Olympic trials, you know, what's, what's that team meeting look like or look like, or what's that, you know, elite athlete coach, uh, meeting look like the night before, uh, Olympic games, uh, final, uh, or marathon or whatever it is. So it's, I've, I've had some pretty good insight. I've, I've been, you know, fly on the wall, just kind of absorbing all that and, and trying to, to to at my you know my best to, to be able to give that back to the athletes I, I coach now. Hey friends, a quick break here to let you know about my friend Sarah Canny's Rise Run Retreat Virtual Running Retreat. This is a great way to stay connected and motivated during these weird times. This is a three-day live and interactive experience that includes original themes and content from the in-person retreats, a digital workbook, access to two live webinars and a live Q&A with their amazing guest speakers, access to a private online community forum, a custom swag bag delivered to your door, swag box, a digital swag bag with generous discounts from the partners of the Rise Run Retreat, the ability to access 
all the content for 14 days after the retreat, including playback of all the live sessions. The next Rise Run Retreat virtual retreat is September 18th through the 20th and features women's health physical therapist and owner of Reform PT in New York City, Dr. Abby Bales. It also features mama, athlete, activist, and mental health advocate, Allison Desir. Registration is open now through September 14th at riserunretreat.com. And be sure to use the code IHA10 to get 10% off your virtual retreat registration. All right, Sarah puts so much love and energy into these retreats, and I know they are amazing. You will leave them feeling inspired and motivated and encouraged. So go to riserunretreat.com and check it out. Use that code IHA10 to get 10% off of your virtual retreat registration, which closes September 14th. All right, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Andrew Castor. Yeah, I'm curious, how, what age did you and Dina get married? So I was 27 and Dina was 32. So my question is, you know, this, your, the training philosophies and, you know, all the things that she outlines and let your mind run. And then all the things that you've just spoken to me that you've kind of taken and learned and then created your own philosophy. Did the two of you kind of grow together in that? And what happens when you have like differing thoughts and things like that, as far as training? Well, I think we've always, Dean and I've always been a a great team uh, ever since we started dating and in April of 2000, uh, we were always, you know, we always wanted the best for each other and we still do, um, in my career and, and of course in her career. So I, I, I think, I think our philosophies did grow together. Uh, I, I think, I think I would, I'm, I'm, I'm the better, I'm the better coach. Um, Dina just sort of did what she was told by, by coach Vihill and Terrence and Lance Harder and, and um, and Coach Bill Dooley from high school, college, and then and then beyond, of course. So she always kind of did what she was told and was really good at it. Um, I studied uh, I studied exercise physiology. I think I have probably have a better grasp of the physiology mm-hmm. um, and the and the whys and the hows of of the training um, versus versus Dina. But but Dina gives an element of of coaching that I can't give because I was never I was never an elite athlete. Mm. I was always I was always striving to be. Uh, so I, I, I studied and I learned, I was reading physiology textbooks in, in high school where I only understood 25% of it. Then after, after college, I went back and reread them and I understood, you know, 90% of it. So I was, I was always kind of, I was always kind of a student of the sport, um, and, and, and keep up with, with the latest on what's happening in the sport. I'm, I'm always the one filling Dina in on, oh, this you know, this, this, uh, this is a new rule by IAAF or, you know, WAF. And this is, you know, here's, here's the opening window for Olympic trials. Cause she doesn't keep up on that stuff really. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm more of a, I think more of a student in the sport, but Dean has been really cultivating her philosophy and, and being able to, you know, having her, um, having her, I guess her stature or her, or her, um, you know, being on her, being on her soapbox, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, she's got a, She's a she's a, a taller soapbox than than I think most, um, and she's able to convey that message to to her following and and um, you know put out a good message and and uh, trying to trying to give back to the sport that's given us a lot. Um, I think you know when we first took took over the Mammoth Track Club, her and I you know sharing 
sharing the coaching duties, if you will, back in 2012, it was always our mission to give back to the sport that we, in which have given us so much, um, not just not just finances, but just in in terms of in terms of relationships and and support and and well being and happiness and and something to do. So um, that was that's, that's been kind of our mission for the last eight years with the with the Mammoth Track Club is is to really pass along the knowledge that we've gained and and give back to the sport that's given us so much. Okay. You, you said you like to, you're the one that shares the information, um, you know, the news and whatever that comes up with Dina. So what are like a couple of the most recent things that you've, you've learned that you've shared with her? Uh, I guess just little nuts and bolts things. Like, like I told her that the Olympic trials were postponed. You uh-huh. know? Like I found that, I, I found that out, you know, the morning it was announced. So I, I relayed that because I know she wasn't going to be on social media that day or whatever. And I kind of let her know and let her know that um, like the qualifying window was postponed for the Olympics on, you know, for, until December 1st. And then just recently international athletes doesn't really per- pertain to us right now, but international athletes can now achieve road racing uh, standards in the, in the walks and in the marathon, you know, starting, I think as early as, I think it, I think it was just September 1st. Um, so those little, those little things that, you know, or, or if, or if somebody, you know, if somebody gets busted by, by, um, USADA or, or WADA, you know, I'll fill her in on that mm. and say, Oh, did you hear, did you hear so-and-so got a miss three tests? I think that's the, that seems to be the the theme of people nowadays is missing all these tests. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and Dina, you know, being, you know, Dina was in the, in the testing pool from 1997 to probably 2000, 15. So there's like, a, my math is right. 18 year swing where she was in the USADA and WADA, either the WADA or the USADA testing pool for 18 years. And she never missed a test. So yeah. kind of like, it's like, and that's when, and that's back in the day where she actually had to fax. I don't oh know if gosh. most of your listeners know what a fax are, <laughs> but she had, she, she had to fax these forms in of where she was going to be for the entire quarter of the year or where she assumed she was going to be. So she had to write in, you know, U.S. Olympic Training Center, Chula Vista from January 1st to February 15th, training for U.S. Cross. And, you know, she had to put that in and she had to write down, you know, that you know, she would be in dorm room number or whatever. And, and then it evolved to online where, oh, this is so much easier, so much more convenient to be online and fill out the USADA forms and the WADA forms. And then there was one time, um, I, I know this for sure, that that WADA and USADA don't talk to one another because Dina was tested twice in the same morning, once by WADA, once by USADA down at, down at Chula Vista at the training center right before a workout. And, and Coach Terrence was down there and He's like, why, Dina, why are you late to, to practice? She's like, oh, you saw it and knocked on the door. And as soon as she got down the track, Wada was waiting for her. So she had to produce another sample. So anyway, I mean, little things like that, the you know, like evolution of of the sport and and uh, convenience. And now, now I think you can just do her thing. You know, there's a there's a uh, there's an app on your phone where you can update. So little little things like that. So when when people miss tests, we kind of say like, what what's going? It's so it's so much easier now. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like there's an excuse at all. Like, you, this is your job. Okay, I have a question about um, your coaching philosophy because I did read that you said, well, you can ask me that, but, like, in five years, I, I'll probably say something different. So mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now in your current state, this is 2020, 
um, like, how would you describe your philosophy in this moment? Well, I think, so I, I coach a variety of athletes. I, I have some online clients that I coach that are, you know, Boston qualifiers and everything, but, but my, my, um, my philosophy is a slightly different for them, but in terms for my elite athletes, uh, I, I do believe in, in volume, um, kind of like coach V Hill. Uh, I believe that the more volume you can successfully, uh, take in without getting injured, of course, um, is, is better, uh, because, what we're, you know, when we're dealing with 1500 meters and up, it's the races are, are mostly aerobic. So I think it's right around 85% aerobic, even for the 1500 meters. Mm. Uh, so my, my, my goal is to really lift the training volume volume as high as possible successfully, uh, with, with my athletes. And then also I believe in hard day, easy day. Uh, you know, I got, I got two guys on the team right now that are 61 minute half marathoners, Reed Buchanan and, and Nico Montanez. And they recently ran the Houston half back in January before everything shut down and before the Olympic trials and the marathon. And they both ran 61 minutes and, you know, their easy training pace on their recovery days are 7:30, mm. even though they are, even though they are racing 442 and 443 mile pace for half marathon. So for that, for those guys to be able to run, seven to seven thirty pace is completely aerobic. And, and that's something I, I picked up from, from the Kenyans, mm -hmm. uh, back in, back in high school, when I first started running in 1991, I was a freshman in high school and I remember getting a, a track and field news magazine and they had an interview with Paul Turgot, who was the, the big stud from Kenya, who was, you know, I think a five or six time world cross country champion, eventually the world marathon record holder, half marathon record holder. And he, and I remember a quote from like 1991 or 1992 of him saying that my hard days are at four minute pace and my easy days are at eight minute pace. Mm. And, and that's really stuck with me. Um, whether or not I adhere to that, you know, in my own running, that was different, <laughs> but, but as in terms of, in terms of, uh, coaching my athletes and that trickles down to my, my Boston qualifier type mm -hmm. athletes that I coach and Olympic trials qualifier athletes that I coach online. Uh, I, that trickles down saying, you know what? I challenge you to go even slower next time. I challenge you to run eight minute pace. I challenge you to run nine minute pace because you're going to thank me come workout day because you're not going to be taxed. And for, for, for a lot of college guys and ladies, that was kind of like, whoa, mm -hmm. is this guy nuts? You know? And, and I said, yes, but you're going to run slower, but you're going to run longer. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you're, you're spending more time in that aerobic zone. You're spending more time in that fat burning zone and you're developing more aerobic enzymes. You're developing more capillary beds that innervate the muscles and nourish the muscles and remove, you know, waste products and byproducts. So uh, so yeah, so I mean, even, even our guys, even our guys right now, their long runs, they average seven to seven thirty mile pace for, for, uh, you know, two hours for the long run, especially now that they're training for 5,000, 10,000 meters during the marathon season. It's a little bit different. Uh, I usually have the marathoners, uh, do a little bit of a progression run for their long runs where they start off at that seven, seven thirty pace. And then the last five or six miles, they tend to be a little bit more biomechanically efficient, if you will, and pick it up to maybe six, six thirty pace where they're finishing their long runs. Uh, it just depends on what the focus 
what the season is and what the focus what the focus distance uh, for racing is. Yeah, that's such a strong message. I am such a believer in that as well, like the slowing down on the easy days. Um, when How many athletes do you virtually coach, like a Boston qualifiers, Olympic qualifiers, and, and that, that sort of I, athlete? I typically have eight to ten athletes that I coach at one time spread around the country. Oh, that's, that's a nice healthy number. It's a good number. Yeah, it's a good number, and I'm still able to give them good quality service. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, some, somebody sends me a text. I try to answer them right away. Uh, I, I update. I don't give them a month training program like I was saying before. Um, I give them a, a weekly program. Uh, I like to I like to change that in in real time, if you will, based on based on their report. Every Sunday, I read their reports, mm-hmm. uh, their their week their weekly recap, and then I. I either stay up late Sunday night or I get up really early on Monday morning and I, I, I send them all their, their training with, with descriptions and everything. So I like to, I like to give them, I, I like to, I like to coach them and I like to talk to them as much as I would like, I would talk to my, my elite athletes who I see on a daily basis. Mm. So I'm tr- trying to give them that experience of, of being, of, of having a, a customized training program based on their work schedules, based on their family life based on their current fitness and then and then um of course their goals i love that okay so let's do a um let's do a uh athlete like say i'm an athlete and i'm gonna ask you a couple questions that you coach sure Sure. okay say i am going for a 305 marathon okay um i'm a very low mileage runner because i'm injury prone so say i peak out at like hmm 45 miles a week. What kinds of things would you have me do as an, as one of your athletes? Like, um, you know how, you know, you say like slow your easy runs down a lot, but you're, those people are probably doing like multiple workouts a week and things like that. So, um, I don't know, just give us your thoughts on like an athlete like that, that's running like a lower mileage base, but wants to run, you know, a five minute PR or something in the marathon. Sure, sure. First, well, the first question I would ask is, is, you know, where did you get the three hundred five number? Mm. You know, is that is that like is the if you come to me with a number, is that is that a Boston qualifying number based on your age? Is it is it is it one? Is it is it a PR for you? Is it a five minute PR for you? Um, you know, go back and look at your history. Is it is that a realistic goal? How much time do we have to to work? You know, because there's there's obviously a learning curve between athlete and coach. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I just picked up an athlete a couple weeks ago and I told her, I said, Hey, no, Suzanne, it's going to be, it's going to be a learning curve on my part and a learning curve on your part. So the more information I can, I can get from you based on your, your history of running, what you've done in the last two or three months and based on your goals. And then, you know, the, the, the learning process of how we're going to communicate, um, just to kind of let, let that person know that there is a learning curve and I may, I may, I may miss my target, you know, the, the target uh, times for, for workouts, but in, in the first couple of weeks, but then I'm a, I'm a usually a quick learner with, with, um, with the athletes and I'm able to prescribe workouts and, and get them going fairly quickly. Uh, but I think, I think for the most part is, is, um, making sure that the athlete understands my training philosophy. So I spend, I spend a good hour, maybe even an hour and a half in our first uh, initial phone call mm. to re- to really lay out my expectations and then to hear what their expectations of me are, um, and then and then give and then give them my 
a PDF of my coaching philosophies that, that they can read at their leisure. They answer a big questionnaire that, you know, everything that they have access to weights, treadmill, what altitude they live at, uh, whether they have cross training equipment, like a bike or access to a pool, you know, make sure I, I have a really clear picture of what's going on and, and what they have access to and what they're comfortable doing and see if there's any, any, uh, injury history. And, and, um, I don't do a lot of diet coaching. I think that's a, a kind of a personal thing mm-hmm. with, with, with athletes. Uh, I, I give my advice and I think it's pretty sound, you know, lots of green vegetables, lots of variety, you know, nothing in excess, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, pretty general, but then, but then to really go trial and error with some people like, okay, so a banana bagel and peanut butter didn't work for you before the long run. Let's try something different, like a little bit of oatmeal with, with, uh, blueberries or something, you know? So I do a little bit of that with them, kind of, kind of coach them through different scenarios and being able to look at things from different angles. Sometimes an athlete's so used to doing one type of training where, well, I run seven minute pace on this day. Then I try and run six minute pace on this day. And I have this loop that I do, you know, once a week and I always try and go faster whether I have a workout or not that week. And, you know, so I, I sort of back people off that and I had to wean one one of my clients off of Strava because she got so wrapped up in what other people of her ability were doing mm. that, that I said, just delete, delete your account. I did that for one of my elite athletes, uh, back in the fall. I, I, I grabbed his phone away from him and I actually deleted the app <laughs> of Strava. and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you don't need that. You don't need to be comparing yourself to other people on a daily basis. I think it's, I think it can be uh, destructive, which is why we don't really post the man track club. We don't, we don't post uh, mm. workouts. We don't, we don't, we don't post workout times. We just kind of like, Hey, we did, you know, we did uh, uh, six by a mile at 10 K race pace or half marathon race pace with three minute recovery, just so that other people can like relate to it uh, versus saying I could never run as fast as so-and-so because they did their repeats at, you know, 424 per mile. And, you know, so I, we, we just take that approach, whether it's right or wrong. It's just, it's just our approach. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, falling in the trap of, of, uh, seeing what other people are doing on a daily basis. And that was one of the things that looking back on it, we sort of pride ourselves on now is when, was when Dina was training, you know, we're training at altitude, 7,000, mm-hmm. 8,000, 8, 9,000 feet. So workouts really don't equate to what you can do at sea level. So we were like, you know, you're getting really fit. I don't know how fit you're in, but I think it's really fit. And then she would go down and, you know, run 107 for the half or, you know, and then, and then go to London and run 219 by just training up in Mammoth and doing these tempos at 530 pace and 520 pace and doing mile repeats at five minute pace. And, and we're like, I, I think you're fit. Um, you know, you haven't, you haven't raced in five months, but, you know, the train's going well, you're super healthy and you're each, each, you know, every other week you're getting faster in your workout. So I, I think this is good. Um, so we, and we, we were literally training with blinders on because it was, it was kind of before the internet. I mean, I mean, the internet has been around a while, a lot longer than most people think, but you know, <laughs> we, 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 no, there wasn't, there wasn't like training websites totally. or there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, in 2003, 
2002, 2003, 2004, there wasn't a lot of running websites where you could look to see what so-and-so was running on a daily basis. There certainly wasn't, you know, social media and, and other clubs posting different workouts and everything. So we were literally training with blinders on kind of like, kind of like at horse races where all the horses have blinders on, they can't see the other horses and get distracted. We were just in our own little microcosm, just getting supremely fit. And that was kind of like our motto for a lot of years was like, okay, let's get supremely fit and let's go down to sea level and race and let's see what happens because there was really no indicator workouts at altitude that we could be like, oh yeah, I think you're in sub 15 shape for the 5k and I think you're in sub 31 shape for the 10k or whatever. It was just kind of like grind and get as fast as you can and then let it rip. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask you about sea level. What, how important do you think that is for elite athletes to be able to train? I mean, I know some people go to training altitude camps, but then some people just live year round. Um, is there a big difference with living there year round opposed to like doing, you know, two months stints at camp? I think so. It, it becomes more of a lifestyle. Uh, and this is kind of rooted from Cote V Hill. And Coach Coach Vigil would always would always encourage athletes to go and live at altitude, uh, just because we can we can produce red a higher red blood cell count all the time. But there's a, a factor that most people don't think about, and that's the plumbing in our bodies. Mm. If you're if you're living at altitude, you get the structural adaptations that are required to accommodate the rise in, in RBC mass. So what that means is that you're, you just get more plumbing, you get more nooks and crannies to stash away red blood cells by living and training hard at altitude. So the athletes that just go and do a, a, a one month or a two month sojourn to altitude for altitude training camp, they're looking at, okay, yeah, my, my, my blood, my, my hematocrit profile went from went from 43 to, to 46 I'm a responder or went from 46 to, to 50 I'm a responder yay and then they take they take that mass they take that the, the red blood cell mass that they created by living in altitude naturally that they go down to sea level and perform well but there's another side of to the coin where it's the getting getting the structural adaptation um, something that was interesting uh, Dina was I, the last blood test that Dina got was like maybe like 2015, and we looked at her her uh, hematocrit, which is the number that most athletes and coaches and physiologists look at as a responder to altitude. And this is right before she ran 109 as a master athlete uh, at the Philly half, and she broke the world record there. Wow. It's been maybe two two or three months ago, or two or three months beforehand, and I was astonished to see her hematocrit, and the doctor that looked at her hematocrit was 39, hmm. which, which is really low for an elite distance runner, especially a, a distance runner that just went and ran 109 for the half. And the only thing that we could explain it, and we talked to Coach Vigil about it, was that her, her vascular system is so well adapted and so vast that she didn't, she, she was storing more red blood cells and, and her blood volume was a lot more was was more was higher and she had more blood plasma than if 
if she just lived at sea level and came up. Mm. So it was really, it was really kind of an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if we ever really figured out what it was. Um, but it was, we, we deemed the fact that she had been training hard at altitude for, for 20 years and has never really left home base. We, we would do sea level training camps for, for three to four weeks before big events, mm. you know, to thin our blood out. And that's another side of the coin too, where, where athletes living at altitude and that are going to race in hot, humid conditions need to go down for three to four weeks to thin out our blood and to get more blood plasma so that we can sweat uh, more effectively at, at sea level. So like going into Athens in 2004, Meb was down, uh, I think 30 days before he got the silver medal and, and Dina was down 21 days before, before she got bronze. So it was just, it was just enough time to, to really thin out the blood and to get the, get the sea level legs on, you know, make sure you're getting the turnover and dialing in race pace at sea level. And then also being able to, to sweat, um, efficiently too, in, in hot, humid conditions. And then I'll also, of course, adapt to the time zone. What a cool year when they both medaled in Athens. It, it was, it was, it was special. And, and if you asked any, anybody training with them and you asked any of the coaching staff, you know, myself or coach V Hill or, or coach Larson, as, as, as they were the head coaches at the time, if you asked any of us a month out, we would have said that they were going to medal. They were just, they were just in such great shape and we knew that nobody on the planet was training like them. Hmm. And and we were just, we were just confident that both of them would medal. I mean, literally, literally like four to six weeks out, we we just knew it was going to happen. We didn't tell anybody that. Yeah. Um, in all the, in all the interviews, I didn't do any interviews. Obviously, uh, coach V Hill did maybe a couple, Bob did a couple, of course, Dina and Meb, you know, were interviewed by NBC just, just days before, before they raced and, and they, they spoke confidently, but they didn't speak arrogantly or they didn't speak, mm-hmm. they didn't speak like, yeah, well, I'm going to get a medal. Um, but D, you know, Dina going in, going into Athens, Dina was the fourth fastest going into the race. Cause she had, she had run 221 in London the year before. And Meb was something like mm. thir- 38 fastest wow. going, going in. And, and we, and we were confident because he ran, he ran some workouts at 9,000 feet that were like, he's in really good shape. So it, it just had to go in, just had, just had, just had to go and uh, execute. Yeah. Is there some strategy behind that? Like in your pre-race interviews, like, you know, I think that some people go with the strategy, strategy that's like, I'm going for gold. Like, why wouldn't I, but is there something to be said for, like you mentioned being, you know, like, yeah, we're fit, we're ready, but kind of not, not giving away that you're that ready. Yeah, there it's it's a it's a balance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some there's some athletes that can pull it off, and they have that personality. It's like I'm going for gold. I'm going, you know, I'm going for the win at all cost. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 they'll and they'll and they'll tell that to to a reporter. You know, they'll put it out there to the universe that that's what they're doing, and that's that's a personality type. But but for both Dina and and Meb going into Athens, there wasn't there wasn't a U.S. medalist for for twenty to you know, 28 years, I believe yeah. something like that. Frank, Frank shorter. And then, and then of course, um, Joan Samuelson. Uh-huh. So it was kind of, it's kind of like, if we can just, if we can meddle, that would be, that would be, that'd be awesome. Um, if you, if you, if you interview, if you interview Dina right now, she would say, 
she, you know, in retrospect, she was probably the fittest in the race and she should have gone for the gold mm -hmm. in Athens, you know, and that's something that she regrets. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, going into that, going into that saying, I'm, 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 I'm going to, and it's, it's kind of funny to say, I'm going to settle for a medal. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's like that at the time it was like this, at the time it was a big deal for, for us. Uh, but in retrospect, like, she closed. She closed that race in 4:57. Up until that time, it was the fastest mile ever run by a woman in a marathon. Uh, it's obviously since been way broken. Um, but up until that time, she 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 says, "I just I just didn't go." And I think she may talk about that in her book. Like, yeah, why am why why am I back here in in 30th place at 5K? I should be up with the leaders. And yeah. and it was just kind of like that unknown. And and she and also the heat heat and humidity kind of scared her too. You know, everything that we were getting out of the, the USOC prepping up for the race was it's going to be hot. It's going to be it's going to be humid and you need to go out conservatively. And that was drilled into us. And I think when when Dina was able to accelerate the last half of the race and, and pull up to third place, Meb saw that as I'm just going to run with the leaders and I'm going to I'm going to run to win uh, because if, if Dina can do it, you know, in the second half of the race, I'm going to do it in the, in the whole race. And, um, so I think that helped, I think that helped with, with Meb's psychology going into the, into the race the next weekend, which was a ton of fun to watch him, you know, pull off a second place. And they, those guys ran their last 5k, like blistering fast as well. It was like low 14s, like 14, 10 or something, or 14, 12, I think for the last 5k, they were, they were also, also rolling too. Wow. Are you guys still close with Meb? Yeah, we're close with Meb. Uh, he's moved away, of course. You know, he's yeah. he sold his house about ten years ago. Uh, he's living in Tampa with his with his family, and we still bump into each other. And I still wish him a happy birthday via text message. And um, we're you know we we bump into each other. And I always say, hey, I, I always call him my brother from another mother. <laughs> and, uh, you know, give, give him a little you know high five kind of hug thing. And and um, so yeah, we're, we're we're pretty close. That was a that was a special time for us here in in Mammoth train together and, and, uh, you know, lacing up the racing flats and biking with them. And, um, you know, I did, I did, I did some of his massage work for him along with some other therapists here in town. So we got to, we got to know him fairly well. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, Meb and Dina, I would say are probably, you know, if pe when people look at the, the scope of marathon running in these last 20 or so years, it's like they just the positive mental attitude as, as well as like the crazy performances, um, just, just legends of the sport. So it's so cool that they got to train and run and both medal in that same year, um, you know, from your group. So that's so awesome. Tell us about, uh, your partnership and sponsorship with on running. Yeah. So, so on, on came to us, uh, we, we were without a, we were without a sponsor in 2017 and I had never really heard of them in the, in the winter, in the, in probably in January, February of 2017 until they'd reached out. I actually got a, uh, an email from Nicole blood who was a, you know, standout high school, two mile runner from, from, uh, from New York. And then of course went to, to Oregon and, and then of course was training with coach gags. And I thought I, I saw her email pop up. I'm like, Oh, she wants to join our group, you know? And, and, uh, no, it was like, Hey, you guys, you guys looking for sponsorship. And I work with, with on running, it's a Swiss company and they're out of Zurich. And, and she's like, we're, we're really looking to, to sponsor a group and sponsor some athletes here in the United States. And, and we think, 
you know, your history and legacy and everything you've done with in the sport is, is, has a good reputation. Uh, we want to, we want to see if a partnership would work. And that was, I think probably like January, February, uh, because I remember being in, I remember being in Florida for, for us cross and going into a running store and actually trying the shoes on for the first time and going for a little jog in them. And, and then later that year, and I think it might've been July 1st of 2017, we, we signed our contract. We signed four, four up and coming athletes, uh, with, with on running and, um, have kept, have kept a few of them over the last, uh, two and a half years. And, uh, they've been very supportive. Uh, we've, we've flown to Zurich, Switzerland to, to headquarters, I brought two athletes over to to run the Zurich Marathon, and one of them actually ended up winning it uh, in on in on gear, which was which nice. was phenomenal. It was, it was good good PR from the club, yeah. good good PR for for Margo who won the race, and uh, you know good good for for the for the brand as well. So so that was kind of fun and exciting, and and uh, looking forward to continuing our partnership uh, into the Olympic the, the Olympic year. Um, our, our, we're going to be renegotiating here pretty soon. And, uh, you know, our, our contract went through the, went through the original Olympic year, you know, at the end yeah. of this one. So we're going to be looking to, for them to, to support our athletes through, through next year as well. And, uh, it's just been a really good partnership for us. You know, I think they identified with the, with, with mammoth really well because of, because of the small town chalet, you know, um, um, chalet atmosphere of being a ski town and the mountains and, and uh, you know the, the pine trees and the the big giant granite granite rocks that we have, and uh, so I think it was I think it was a, a good a good partnership for them, and and definitely for us to be able to keep keep athletes healthy and keep keep footwear on them, and you know fund fund them to go to races and and sponsor our our speaker series here in in Mammoth, and uh, that we do with our elite athletes with all the high school kids that come into Mammoth, we have upwards of two to 3000 kids that come to mammoth each summer, not this summer, but every, every, but every other summer that we, that we have the speaker series where I have all of our elite athletes at a, at a picnic table, uh, in one of our parks, uh, shady rest park. And we have about anywhere from four to, to 600, 700 kids show up to these talks. And I, I pass a microphone around and the kids get to ask questions and they can win, they can win mammoth track club and, and on running gear while they're there. If they answer a, a mammoth related or a track related trivia question. So I, I like the, I'm the M- MC of that event uh, most years and, and be able to, to give, to give back to the running community uh, and then have the kids ask our elite athletes, which, there's not that much age difference. You know, our, our, our athletes are 25, 26, 27 years old. Uh, you know, there's only, there's only about an eight year difference to some of those high school and, and some of the college kids that come up too. They're, they're very close to those college kids age. So they ask them, what's, you know, what's your favorite run in mammoth? Uh, you know, what do you eat? And then we have to clarify, like, what do you eat after a run? What do you eat before a run? And what's your, what's your best high school memory? What's your favorite event? What are you training for? So it, uh, on running has been a good, good supporter of, of that, of that series that we do as well. Hey friends, a quick break to encourage you to check out the other two podcasts in the Sandy boy productions podcast network. That is my network that I started last fall. I guess it was maybe last summer, but the illuminate podcast, which I co-host, uh, this past week, I hosted an awesome episode with 
Deborah Devines, who is the founder of the Indiana Prison Writers Workshop. An incredible conversation over there, episode 54. Definitely check that out. And then the Up and Running podcast hosted by Lauren Flores and Abby Stanley. These ladies are doing an amazing job over at Up and Running, and they are bringing you all the latest news in elite and professional distance running. They bring you this information in a really fun way, and I am certain you will enjoy it. Check them out. Up and Running with Lauren and Abby. All right, everybody. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Andrew Castor. Okay. Are you ready for into podcast questions? Yes, let's do it. All right. What is one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you have not done yet? Hmm. Yeah, let's see. Um, I'm thinking, well, I'm still not satisfied with the complete development of the Mammoth Track Club organization itself. You know, I still like to recruit athletes, develop elite athletes, um, hire on coaches to to coach our youth our youth program in the summertime and then expand that, you know, hopefully through the, through the spring and fall because in the winter we, we ski, obviously. Um, and I guess bolster our, our races that we put on, make those better for the community. So I think, I think just kind of pursuing uh, what we have now and, and getting better at, at getting better, I guess, uh, making, making things, making things uh, more enjoyable and, and producing uh, athletes going to U.S. championships and qualifying for world championships and Olympic games. You know, that's, I guess that's sort of the, the, the passion that we have now. And that's, you know, obviously that's professional um, and personally, just maintaining my fitness, I think personally, um, is, is kind of what I want to do, do there is just, and keep a, keep a clean garage. Keep a clean garage. I love that. <laughs> That's hard to do. Everything piles up so yeah. fast. Like it does. And we've, and we've actually, Lindsay, we've, we've been, we've been purging a lot of things. This, this, uh, lockdown, this, this pandemic, we've been, we've been, you know, having, you know, posting things on Facebook and, yeah. and, and placing it outside and people leave cash underneath the mat mm-hmm. and just getting rid of a lot of stuff. So, so I'm actually proud to say that I can pull a car into my garage. I got my work, my workbench and workshop all, all neatly and organized and everything. And I want to be able to have that example for, for our daughter Piper or uh-huh. like, uh-huh. Oh yeah, growing, growing up, our, our garage was always clean and we always had a car and we always had access to our bikes and I didn't have to step over anything. <laughs> kind of the inverse of how Dean and I grew up. So, so I want to make sure that, that we're, we're not, you know, the house is nice and organized and, and, and lead by example for our, for our daughter. Well, it feels better. It just feels good when things are organized. Uh- Yes. I mean, and I, I'm with you. Like we, I feel like I purge all the time yet there, and I'm not an excessive purchaser of things, but yet there's still 12 bikes and you know, so many, Mm -hmm. so many things to organize. So, um, yeah, I actually just went through and organized all of our junk drawers last weekend and it was so satisfying. (laughs) Mm, It's awesome. Yeah. It's a great feeling. I I'm actually able to get more work done and be more creative when things are organized. Uh uh Dina is a bit more focused. She can, I mean, her, she, she, her office desk is literally our dining room table and she has like stacks of papers around Uh and I, I, and I don't say anything because that's her, that's her deal. She knows where everything is. 
but I couldn't work like that. Like I have to, I have to spend five or 10 minutes organizing my desk first before I can actually be productive. Uh-huh. Um, cause I get, you know, I throw, I throw, I throw papers and mail on the desk and it, it gets discombobulated every once in a while. But in order for me to sit down and focus and write something, I have to have everything in its place before I can do that. Oh, I feel that so much. Okay. What's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Uh, so right off the top of my head is, is, is raising a daughter. Mm. Um, it's both challenging in the sense of accomplishment when she's, you know, completes a task at school or, or, or does a, a ski run that I, I'm following her with, you know, and I, I know that's not me personally, but it's, you know, just, I think just being a parent, I think is, is really fun and challenging. And it's, it's a sense of accomplishment when they, when they achieve, when they, when they achieve something. Um, so I think, that's kind of an offshoot, but I think the thing I'm most proud of, I think recently is, is writing, is writing two books. On oh, running. I meant to cover that. And, yes. Yeah. No, I, share. And, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I never in a million years considered myself a writer. Um, you know, I always did okay, you know, being in the science department, you know, exercise physiology and writing papers. I always did, I always did all right. But uh, you know, Dina being a literary literary major and a and a and a journalism major, you know, she's the writer in the family. I always thought of her as the the writer in the family. But I beat her to the punch, you know, writing our first or writing our first book, and then I beat her to the punch writing our second, my, you know, my second book, uh-huh. um, which is kind of a, a sore t- topic in this household. <laughs> um, but I was just I, I was I was approached by a by a by a publisher and. And said, "Hey, you know, you got you want to write a book on you want to write a book on running your first marathon, and you want do you want to write a book on running as you age?" And I'm like, "I I, I guess I do have some experience with this now." Um, and then you know it goes through a bunch of renditions and revisions and edit, edits and everything, and it the shiny the shiny end product actually comes out all right. So um, I think I think this, in, in recent in recent times, I think writing writing my two books. Um, is, is the biggest accomplishment and then, um, most, the, the most, the most I'm proud of at, at this time. But then, you know, we're, we have a, both Dean and I have are insatiable. We have, we have goals. We want to accomplish more and, and keep going. And, you know, we never think of ourselves of retiring, even though we have, you know, 401ks and, and retirement planned. It's like, are we ever going to use that money? Cause I don't ever see me retiring. I don't ever see you retiring. What do you, you know, we're always going to be consulting in some way or, you know, hopefully Dina's, you know, fortunate, you know, she's fortunate enough to be able to, to give talks to, mm-hmm. to at, at, at running expos or to, to companies or whatever. So I can, she can see herself doing that for another 20, 30 years. And if there's still an interest, um, I can, I can continue to do, uh, clinics and, and talk to young athletes. So, so I don't think we'll ever, ever retire. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't until recently that we looked back on her career. It was, must've been in the last two or three years where we, we sort of took our head out of the sand and was like, wow, look what, look what you did. That was amazing. That was great. You know, cause it, cause in, in, in the meantime, like in the moment we were just so wrapped up with, with what we were doing that we never, never really took our head out of the sand and, and kind of like looked around and said, Oh, Oh, you, oh, you, you ran that, you ran that race and you won this one and, and so forth. And I think that was kind of a enlightening moment. Like, wow, let's, let's take a, let's take a minute to take a deep breath and look at, look at what we've done, kind of acknowledge it be like, okay, that was cool. But let's, let's see what we can do in the future now too. I love that. Yeah. Retiring sounds really boring to be honest, but maybe well, right. I'll revisit that in, in 
20, 30 years maybe and say, yeah, no, it sounds pretty good. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Um, what's the best, most recent book you've read? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I read one, the one that jumps out right now is Atomic Habits mm. by, by James Clear. Um, it's, it's been a few months since I've, since I've read it. Uh, but it's probably the, the best book I've read. Um, just basically, you know, habit stacking, you know, and, and really, uh, making habits, the, the compound interest, uh, for self-improvement. Um, you know, making sure that you're, you know, if you, if you brush your teeth, uh, you gotta make sure that you floss and then make sure that you gargle and then do your pushups right afterwards, you know, that sort of thing where you're just putting all these habits like in succession mm-hmm. to where you can, you can better yourself. Um, there's obviously more examples than that, but that's just something off the top of my head that, that some, that people can do that are all, all healthy things that you can do for yourself. Um, but most recently I, during this lockdown, I picked up Frankenstein Okay. <laughs> because I was, I was, I was not a literary major like, like Dina. So like Dina has like all these, you know, obviously, um, you know, fiction, fiction, storytelling, writing books and everything. And I'm like, I never even glanced at them. I always have, I have my, my old college physiology and kinesiology and Tudor Bompa's methodology of periodization and all these kind of books that I, I glance at from time to time. And, and then she's got all the, the storytelling books and I'm like, you know what? I've sort of neglected that over the last 25 years. I'm going to go back. I'm going to, so I started reading Frankenstein. And it, I mean, I mean, amazing. I, I only understand, you know, you know, half of what's going on, but just the architecture and the, and the wordsmithing is just beyond anything I've ever, I've ever read in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. So it's been, it's been good to maybe bolster my vocabulary a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, so that's been, that's been a fun, been kind of a fun journey in reading, whether I completely understand the wording or not you know, <laughs> it, it, based on the 1800s and so forth. Wow. So. Okay. Wow. I, that book, 1800s. Wow. Okay. That book sounds, sounds intimidating to me to be completely honest. I do love to have a fun, like a, a story book and also a book like Atomic Habits to be reading. And Atomic Habits is on my list. I've heard great things. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Who's someone fun, motivating, or inspiring you'd like to sit down and have coffee, tea, or cocktail with? Oh, boy. Well, I haven't seen my parents in a couple years. Um, they, they live they live in the Midwest, and I was going to go visit them in the spring this year, and I'm not going to do that because they're, they're, they're getting older. They're close to 80 now. and um, I, well, Actually, my mom is actually turning 70. My dad's going to be 80 next year. Uh, so I would love to sit down. I mean, they're really, really funny when you get a couple, couple glasses of wine in them. <laughs> um, I always have a great time when they always rehash my – my, my upbringing and my childhood being raised an only child is they have a lot of stories about just me, obviously. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, someone that we can all relate to, I, I kind of think of Tom Hanks, the oh, actor. Yeah. I love just, I've never met him. I don't know him personally. I've seen, I've only seen a couple interviews with him, but just his presence on screen and his personality you just think he's a fun guy. He's yeah. like, he's totally, he's, he's funny. He's witty. He's a fun guy. He's experienced a lot. Um, he's given, he's given back to the community, you know, in, in some regard, back to, back to humanization, if you will, back to, 
you know, globally and in, in terms of uh, philanthropy and, and, and giving. And so I just, I don't know, just to either have coffee or a beer with them and just to kind of get to know him for some reason, I think would be kind of fun. He was a, he was a child, you know, me growing up in the, in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, watching his movies, he just seemed like a fun, easygoing type of guy. And I think, yeah, Tom Hanks. He does seem awesome. He just seems all around legit for sure. Um, like relatable too for For someone being so famous. Uh, okay. What Andrew is your one message to send to the world? And if I had to sum it up in just a few words, I would say, take a deep breath, relax, and focus on giving back. Mm. Focus, focus on just sending out good energy to, even if it's just one person a week, or if you have the platform to, 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 to be positive to thousands or even some people millions, at, you know, with a tweet or a post or whatever, just, just to take a deep breath, relax and to, to focus on giving. Somebody needed to hear that. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Lindsay. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on the show. You all can find Andrew on Instagram. He is Coach Caster over there. You could find me on Instagram. I am Lindsay Hine 626 I would love to connect with you, with you there. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Lindsay Hine. And on Facebook, I am, I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. Definitely join the group and connect with this community over there. I think that's all I got. Leave us a rating and review. Take a screenshot, share it with your friends. Anything like that, that would be helpful in uh, helping us grow this show. Thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate each and every one of you. And have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.